Let me give you the, the uh, pastoral warning this week. You know, Congress went back into session, and of course it's what's called a lame duck session. That means they only have a couple of months to do as much damage as they can before the new people come in, all right? And I say that not being, trying to be funny, that these are, these are treacherous times because we still have a one-party majority, which means they like to take advantage of that to, uh, to run things through. Um, there was a piece of legislation that I tried to warn you about. In fact, I just want to say this real quickly. Um, I encourage all of you to be my Facebook friends, not because um, I'm lonely, but because that's where I post a lot of pertinent information about what's going on if you, if you want to be a part of that. Also, has anybody listened to Pastor uh, Andrew and I on our podcast? Anybody take a listen to that, some of you? That's another place where we take a deep dive into what's going on in our culture to help you connect the dots between our biblical worldview and our religious liberties and our freedoms. So I encourage you to to take a listen to that because we're talking about a lot of important things. But there was a piece of legislation put forth in the Senate by uh, Senator Schumer. How many of you know when Senator Schumer puts anything forward, it's bad? I'm just saying, I don't know. He might have done something at some point in his life that was good, but it's bad. And how many of you know they lie? So whatever the name of the bill is, it's the opposite that's happening. So this week we got the respect for marriage bill. This is the desecration of marriage and the trampling of religious liberty bill. That's what it should be called. This is what's at stake. Some of you may have noticed when Roe v. Wade came down, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas said this. He goes, we probably need to go back and revisit the Obergefell decision because it was based on the same faulty reasoning, which means marriage would go back to the states, which means we would be able, again, to pass laws in our own state for marriage policy. Well, they didn't like that, and so now they want to push this through, which basically makes it a federal law that the states can no longer change, so we are stuck with same-sex marriage. Now, I told you, and this is why this is important if you want to be relevant to the kingdom of God. Every bit of the LGBTQ, et cetera, they would keep adding the alphabet. Every single one of those letters stands for something God specifically, overtly condemns in Scripture. Every one of them. It's not even like we're not sure. Every single one, God specifically condemns and calls it sin. We're not in the dark about this. I also told you there is no overlap between that agenda and our agenda. Righteousness. There's no overlap. There's no place where those come together. And I want to challenge you in your own thinking on this issue. Where it gets to be really messy is when we have family members or friends who are trapped in that lifestyle, and then it becomes personal to us. I'm not talking about personal love or affection for people. I'm talking about public policy that is deadly and will trample your liberties and will restrict your ability to do what I'm preaching about today. So let's take a look at this legislation. It empowers the government to punish tens of millions of Americans who wish to live according to their deeply held beliefs. In other words, if you want to bring Jesus to work, you're not going to be allowed to without threat of job loss or, ready for this one, lawsuits. Now, can I just tell you, this is, go all the way back to, to Hitler's Nazi Germany. What did he do with the church? He passed all these regulations, and if you violated the regulations, you would be subject to lawsuits. Does anybody out here love lawsuits? You just love to be sued. You love that hanging over your head for three years, and you love writing checks to attorneys. Anybody like all that? Okay, good. I don't either. And so, you know what happens when there's the threat of a lawsuit? You self-censor. You self-censor. You stop speaking the truth. 
This opens us up to all kinds of lawsuits simply for believing that marriage should be between a man and a woman. Secondly, it exposes uh, religious individuals and organizations to predatory lawsuits. Just talked about that. And thirdly, it will weaponize the IRS against faith-based organizations threatening their nonprofit status. Okay? So, for those of you that are still saying, Pastor, why are we talking about politics in church? Because this impacts every single one of us. And if this goes through, and, and I'm just going to connect the dots, there were only 10 idiots on the Republican side who voted for this. And we happen to have one in our state, yes. Senator Todd Young. What are you thinking, Senator? I have no idea. What are you thinking? You need to call the Senator's office and ask him, what are you thinking? After you've educated yourself as to what you need to say, and you need to say it nicely, but you need to say it because he just voted for something that will open the doors wide to the trampling of our religious liberties, especially in the marketplace where, where almost all of you work most of the week. So this stuff is very important. So let me, get back, let me get back to why this matters for what I'm talking about this week. We're in a series called Bringing Jesus to Work. And I shared last week, how many of you would like to see not just a meeting, a church meeting, but a movement, a Holy Ghost movement across our nation that would impact our entire nation? In fact, can I remind you, God's intention in, in the, with the church being the church is not to win a few souls to salvation along the way. His vision is much bigger than that. His vision is to disciple entire nations. And I just want to elevate our thinking. It's not about getting one or two people saved here or there. It is about the sway of the gospel having influence over an entire region of people. Now, that doesn't mean every single person bows their knee to Christ, but it means our righteousness is reflected publicly. It means our laws, our schools, our education system. It means government. It means the marketplace are impacted by the gospel so that you can see it. And one of the ways it will be impacted certainly is in legislation. We will promote righteousness and not wickedness in our nation. And I share with you five paradigm shifts that I want to cover very quickly from Acts chapter 2. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and read it. Acts chapter 2, 41 through 47. One of the things I suggested was that we get our focus off the church being an evangelistic center and turn it into being a training center where evangelism happens not just in church, but throughout the whole community, all throughout the week. Please hear me in balance. Pastor, are you saying we should never lead anybody to, to the Lord at church? No, we want to lead as many people as we can to the Lord at church. I'm telling you, shift your focus to the wider harvest. The harvest that's white on the harvest is not all sitting in here on Sunday morning. It's out there in the world. And God's called us not to try to drag those people to church, but to reach them where they're at. And who's he going to do to reach them? He's going to use you, and he's going to use me to reach them. So what if Sunday morning, if our focus was on being equipped, being empowered with the Holy Spirit, being equipped with the Christian worldview, receiving the tools and the weaponry that God wants to give us to go love our neighbors and to lead them to Jesus Christ? I share with you, too, let's, let's believe God for kingdom prosperity instead of having a scarcity-based spirituality. So many people have a poverty spirit in the church. They're almost embarrassed for being blessed. Stop being embarrassed for being blessed. How in the world can God prosper your business so that you can be a blessing to others if your business is going under? Well, pastor, God's not concerned with profit and capitalism. Oh, yes, he is. He's very concerned because it's the foundation of economic blessing and it's the heartbeat of healthy communities. 
How about this? Let's believe in growth by transformation, not just simply coming for information. Now, I didn't set up these testimonies, but you heard one common denominator in every testimony. God changed my life. The problem with much of our churches today is we come and we transfer information, and we go, that was a good message. But how many of you know good messages don't do anything? Necessarily. Unless good messages lead to transformation, which leads to transformation. Do you know how the church grows? From people being changed. From people encountering Jesus. From people being rocked. From marriages being healed. People being set free from addiction. People having their bodies healed. People that are lost coming to know Christ. Transformation. Can you, can you just agree with me? We are not going to settle for being a place that just gives out good information. We must have more of Jesus. Amen? All right, next point. Are we going to believe for favor with the community or are we going to be fighting against the community? If we're loving our neighbors well and we're coming up with solutions and answers that bless people, how many know we'll have favor with the police, the fire department, we'll have favor with government officials, we'll have favor everywhere we go, we'll have favor in the marketplace because if your business is kingdomized and Jesus is Lord, you'll be using your business to serve people and meet needs, not just at church, but out there. What would happen if your business was coming up with solutions that bless, you know, dozens and dozens of people across the community? So how about this? Why, instead of being the complainers of culture, why don't we be the creators of culture? Why don't we ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom so that we have knowledge to know how to live in the real world and bring about solutions to problems? Are you guys with me? Now let me just say, this message is scary because I'm basically saying... You're the ministry. I'm I'm taking whatever was placed just on me, and I'm now putting it all on all y'all. And everybody's not happy with that. (laughs) But you should be happy. Go to the next one. What if we focused on not just a power demonstration in church, but what if we believe that the Holy Spirit wanted to move powerfully through us out there? Now, please hear me again. Pastor, are you saying we shouldn't believe God for the Holy Spirit to move in church? No, we want to believe for more of a move of the Holy Spirit in church. But here's what I am saying. Why are we limiting the Holy Spirit's ministry to what happens in the four walls of the church? How many of you are full of the Holy Spirit? Just just wave at me. I want to see you. Guess what? You're going to leave the building. And guess what? He's going with you. And guess what? You should be expecting a move of God through you wherever you go. Not just here, you moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this should get you really excited because this means we could either, here's, here's our option. We can either just come to services the rest of our lives and then die, or we could be in part of what God's trying to do in the earth. It's exciting. It's global. It's, it's, it's an unstoppable movement that God's wanting to unleash on planet earth. I want to be in the white knuckle first seat on the, on the, on the roller coaster. You know, letting out the scream. Ah, that's what I want to be, not, not on the lazy river. You with me? So I'm telling you something this morning that's crazy awesome if we would get it. I want you to see Jesus' vision is so much bigger than our vision. It's really exciting. Now, I gave you something prophetic to do last week, and I hope you took me up on it because I'm, I'm not just playing around, folks. I'm serious. How many of you have kitchen tables? How many of you have a house? All right, apartment. You live somewhere. 
I said, when you go home, first of all, see your home. Consciously dedicate your home as a ministry center. This is profound. This is profound. It is a shift in your mind where you see the place where you live as a center for God's operation in your community. What would happen? Basically, what we're doing is we're taking the church and we're going, and we're scattering it across the community. How many, how many different cities are represented at Living Stones on Sunday morning? I don't know. I, I bet we got the whole region covered. How many communities? How many neighborhoods? How many cul-de-sacs? How many country homes? How many, I mean, we got it all covered here. And then I said, lay your hands on your table, your kitchen table, and recognize that your table is your pulpit for the sharing of the gospel and the ministering of the good news to other people. They're going to be sitting around your table eating some pie over the holidays or whatever, and that you're going to see that table as a pulpit for sharing the good news. Now, I saw some old-time living stoners, first service, who've been with us for 30, 40 years, and some of them were back at my mom and dad's house when a football coach and a school teacher were sitting around a kitchen table till way late at night, loving on people, and listen, seeing the power of God moving in our home. Now, can I just tell you, this is the best secret I could give to any parent who's wanting to raise godly children. Are you ready for it? Let your children see you ministering to other people in your own home and seeing the power of God moving through you to touch people. Undeniable. Undeniable. The greatest impact in my life was not my dad's words on Sunday morning. It was my dad's life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and what was happening out of our house because I saw this isn't a job. This is an adventure. That should be a military commercial or something like that. (laughs) Oh, they already got that one. All right. That changed my life more than anything because I saw couple ordinary people in my eyes, my mom and dad, who were being mightily used by the Lord to touch people in our home. So what it said was God's not confined to a, a holy place, and God's not confined to a just behind the pulpit experience. God wants to take all of our homes and turn them into ministry centers and all of our tables and turn them into pulpits, and God has called all of you along with me in this amazing thing called the ministry. Amen. And the sooner you own it, Then all of a sudden Sunday morning will matter because you're like, I need to get to church because I want to be with God's people. I want to experience more of the Lord, and I want to be equipped to do what God's called me to do. Like, this is serious because I have my ministry. Monday morning, I'm going off to my ministry place. Let me ask you another question. This is really scary to the devil. How many different sectors of our society and our marketplace are represented right here? I wonder if we have any teachers Yep, we sure do. wonder if we have any uh, realtors. Yep. wonder if we have any investment people, bankers. Yep, we sure do. wonder if we have any uh, construction workers. Yep. wonder if we have any medical and, uh, and nursing staff here. Yeah, we sure do. I mean, I could go right down the line. We have every segment of society covered by the church of Jesus Christ. There's not, there's not one area in our community that Jesus hasn't strategically raised someone up and placed them. It's you. This is so awesome. It's the best kept secret. Or you can just come to church, punch the time clock, head out your merry way. What's going to be more exciting? I think what I'm sharing with you is really, really exciting. Really exciting. It's about getting engaged. So let's talk about the marketplace. Let's define it first of all. The marketplace, a combination of business, education, and government. 
is to a metropolis what the heart is to the human body. Through these three arteries flows the life of a city. A city cannot exist without a marketplace in the same fashion that a body cannot live without a heart. Isn't that good? How are we to disciple a nation or a community if we leave government, education, and the marketplace untouched, the business community untouched? How are we going to touch a community? It's impossible. Let me share with you some good news. Jesus is actually more comfortable and more familiar with the marketplace than with the monastery. I want that to sink in. If I said, Jesus, monastery, marketplace, I'll, get, I'll bet you 99% of the people out there would say monastery because they picture him as a holy man. Well, he was a holy man, a holy man in the marketplace. Jesus didn't hide. Jesus wasn't locked away somewhere to keep pure. Jesus was out amongst the people. He was more familiar with the marketplace than with the monastery. This is incredible. Where was Jesus born? He could have been born in a castle or a temple, but he chose to enter our world in a place of business. He was in the stable of an inn. That's like saying Jesus was born in the parking garage at the Marriott. I want to say that again. Jesus would have been born in the parking garage at the Marriott because the Marriott had no room. He was born in the marketplace. He was not born in some religious place. It's important. How about the angelic host that worshipped him upon his arrival? They were, the, the, the choir, the angelic choir was at a nearby feedlot while shepherds were out with their flocks. Who were the first visitors to visit Jesus? Well, they were actually small business owners called shepherds. God's trying to show us his great heart for the marketplace. Let me ask you this. What was Jesus doing for most of the first three decades of his life? He was working in a family-owned business with his dad, and he was a carpenter. Can I just say that again? Jesus was a carpenter. He built stuff. When you'd shake his hand, it would have been rough and callous. He, he worked. In fact, I want, I want to show you this. One of his greatest reasons of offense was that he was a hardworking man, and he came in a package that the religious folks weren't expecting. Look at what it says in uh, Matthew's God, or I'm sorry, Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter six, verse three. They scoffed at him. He is just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and his sisters. They all live right here among us. And look at this. They were deeply offended, and they refused to believe in him. Why? He was just a carpenter. What a downer. Who's this guy think he is? And we know his family. He's just a carpenter. I'm looking out here. There are some men in this place who are incredibly skilled with their hands. They build stuff. They make stuff. They cut stuff. They nail stuff. Uh, they do all that kind of stuff. I'm just amazed by all y'all because I just stand and I just go, wow, that is incredible. But some of you, I'm looking out here, skilled people with your hands. Scott, skilled people with your hands. Jesus was one of those guys. So when we're talking about the Son of God who's moving powerfully in ministry, where's all this ministry taking place? Out there. And who's doing it? A guy that was very familiar swinging a hammer and cutting boards and building stuff. In fact, have you ever thought of this? When Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, he's probably talking about a real yoke. He made a lot of yokes. They knew he made yokes. 
He's speaking the language of a carpenter using a metaphor that they could all understand about a spiritual reality, but he actually made yokes and probably tables and everything else. He was just a carpenter. But let me just mention that by the time of his baptism by John the Baptist, he had been working probably with his father for about two decades. He was not just a carpenter. He was a well-skilled artisan. And he was running a successful family business that was profitable. This is who Jesus was for most of his life. Now, can I just pause here? All of you that own your own business, Mike, I'm looking at you building decks, working with the skills with your hand, cutting, shaping, building, and you do some amazing work. Jesus is more like you with how he spent his time than he is like me with how I spent it with my calling. Jerry, incredibly gifted. I mean, I could go right down the line here with men that are incredibly gifted. I'm, I, this should, should have like explode in our heart. Jesus was like you, like really like you. And yet he carried the anointing of God on him everywhere he went. Can I just tell you this? If you're sitting here this morning and I've heard people say this, well, I'm just a, how could God use me? I'm just a, do you know Jesus already took that upon himself too? Because that's what they said about him. You're just a. So if you really want to identify with Jesus, stop using the labels people have put on you to make you feel stupid or make you feel unqualified or make you feel like you don't have an important job or whatever it is. You're not just a anything. You're somebody very, very special whom God has saved and called and filled with his spirit and anointed to do what you do in a powerful way. You're not just a anything. You're an anointed servant of the Lord. Now, it should come as no surprise when Jesus picked his team, the team didn't come from religious circles. It came from the marketplace. Look at Matthew. As Jesus is walking along in the marketplace, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector booth. Here's an IRS agent God's calling. Come on. I just badmouthed him a little while ago. Now here we go. We got an IRS agent who is now a secret agent for the, for the kingdom. How about James and John? A little further up the shore, Jesus ran into a couple of brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father. This is the family business. Their father's Zebedee. They're repairing the nets, and he called them. Hey, you guys come too. And immediately they followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Probably had to go back and clean up a little family mess right there, but that was cool. They were, see you later. We're, go, we're after Jesus. Look at Luke. Colossians 4 calls him Luke, the beloved doctor. Now we got the medical community Jesus has brought in. And how do, I mean, you know, even Paul, the converted rabbi, operated a successful for-profit tent-making business. We read about it in Acts chapter 20. Paul was making tents by day and preaching the gospel by night. And he was a profitable tent maker because that's what he used to support his ministry. So, I mean, a bivocational ministry is great ministry. It means you're working hard with your hands and you're ministering there. And then you're using your spare time to, to really get involved in whatever your passion area is with the gospel. But Paul's doing that as well. The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, it was not poured out. He was not poured out in a synagogue, but in the upper room of a private home. That's pretty cool. And as we read last week, the church was birthed after a fisherman named Peter preached the first gospel message. The Bible tells us 3,000 people got saved, and literally church took place all over town. 
While they continued to meet in the temple, they also met in homes and throughout the city for worship and prayer and food. What a, what a powerful example. This really is the, the vision behind life groups is that every one of our neighborhoods would have a gathering throughout the week where people could come and receive love and encouragement in life. I, I was invited to one of our life groups this past Thursday. Uh, of course, we're winding up our life group session, getting ready to kick that off in, in, after the holiday here. But the house was full of people loving the Lord, loving each other. The koinonia in that place was so incredible. And I just kept thinking everybody in the world needs needs a group like this in their lives to love them and to love the Lord and to do life together it was amazing let me ask you this question in the book of Acts there are 40 miracles performed okay trivia question how many of the miracles took place at church I think there was just one to prove that, yes, good things can happen when you come to church, all right? Um, and I mean, no, we want to believe God for miracles in the church, and we're praying for people. But here's the point. 39 out of 40 took place at work. I want this to sink in. 39 out of the 40 of the miracles took place at work. Let me, let me ask this question. Why? I'm going to help answer the question. Where do you run into people who are hurting? Her marriages are, are, are on a ba- in a bad place. Their kids are far from God. Uh, maybe they're having financial trouble. Maybe they got a bad diagnosis. Maybe they have somebody in their family who's, who's dealing with addiction. Where do you find all these people? Anybody know people like that where you work? You don't have to go looking for them. They're around you every single day. And who, who is most likely? Who are they going to share their heart with? Someone that they know and someone that they know cares for them. Yeah, have you ever heard that ministry is not complicated? It's bringing Jesus into contact with people that are hurting and have needs and then sharing Jesus and then believing that the same Holy Spirit that was in the apostles is in us and that Jesus wants to deliver the goods through us. Isn't this pretty incredible? How many of you will go off to work tomorrow morning and you'll be surrounded by at least a handful of people that you know don't know the Lord and that have needs in their life? So why do we come to church on Sunday? Well, how about we get sharpened? How about we worship? How about we listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying? How about maybe God's laying some of these people on our heart? And guess what? We're praying and we're looking for opportunities to release the blessing and the power of God around us. Now, what would happen? Okay, so the person at work gets radically encountered by Jesus. They have marriage problems. Well, you don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to start marriage class at lunch hour at your workplace. Bring them to church. We'll do that for you. Well, they need to get connected to a group of people that really love the Lord. We have those people. They're called life groups. Well, we got this person. He's got a, he's got a, a, a habit, a hurt, a hangout that needs to get healed from. We got places where that can happen, like Celebrate Recovery. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The church becomes, we, we rally around you and we do the thing so you don't have to do it all, but you get to do most of it, okay? And then we get to rally around you and help you do the other stuff. All right, let me keep moving on here. What was it that set apart These fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, John, what set apart those guys from these other fishermen over here? Like, what what was the difference? Well, the Bible tells us, and I really want you to hear this this morning. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Look at this next part. For they could see they were ordinary men. Can you just turn to the person next to you and say, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Ordinary. Just say hi to them, all right? Right now. (laughs) 
So the first quality you need to have to be used by God is you need to be ordinary. Does everybody qualify for that one? Now, in God's eyes, you're extraordinary. In our eyes, you're extraordinary. But sometimes in our eyes, in the world's eyes, we're just ordinary. Let me tell you what else qualifications that they had. This is a really good one. We wouldn't expect this. With no special training in the Scriptures. (laughs) Okay, this is so good. I have just disarmed every excuse any of you could have about, about joining the mission. Pastor, I'm just ordinary. Welcome to the crowd. I've had no formal theological training. Welcome to the team. Did you hear what I just said? Now, if you heard it wrong, you'll say, well, pastor doesn't value theological training. That's not what I said. I said it's not a necessary requirement to be used greatly by God in the marketplace. I'm not espousing biblical ignorance. We can be students of the word. But what I'm saying is you don't need a special degree or specialized training before God can use you. You just need, oh, let's see what they did have to have. They recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. That's the requirement. So can you, I'm I'm trying to have fun with you this morning, but this is what the vision I'm sharing is scary to the devil. Jesus wants to recruit ordinary people. Thank you for those sound effects. That was good. Ordinary people. Is that you? No specialized theological training. Ah, but who have been walking with Jesus. Any Jesus lovers out here? So, so what do we do? We, we get up in the morning. We spend time with Jesus. We love him. We tell him we love him. We worship him. We read the word. We pray. We, we, we bathe our work day in prayer with expectation that God is going to move and we're going to have divine appointments throughout the day. In other words, you go to work like I come to church. What if I came to church this morning and I'm like, oh, I should have thought about something to talk about. I hope it never comes off that way. I'm really not trying to do that, but it could come on. Like, what if you show up at work and like, oh, this person's got knees and I should have spent time with God this morning. Yeah, you should have. Why why did you come unprepared? God's God's trying to set you up with divine appointments and and we're just not in the game because we think that's just what pastors do. Ordinary, untrained, be with Jesus Revival. All right, I'm going to go through this last part really quickly. If we're going to bring Jesus to work, we've got to address three major lies. I want to hit them really fast. First lie is the clergy laity distinction. What I mean is, if you're really holy, you get called into the ministry. Pastor, missionary. Praise God. And let me just say this loudly and clearly. We need great pastors. And if you got a call to be a pastor, embrace it. We need great missionaries. We still got to go to the nations. I can hear Pastor Dick and Susie yelling amen from right next door, right? We need great missionaries that have a heart for the nations. But can I just tell you something? It is a false dichotomy to put one on a higher pedestal than the other. Because in God's eyes, it's not about that. Look at, look at the quote from A.W. Tozer. Great quote. 
It is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. The motive is everything. Do whatever you do for the glory of God. So don't make, don't put people up on pedestals, holy people, non-holy people. If you got Christ living in you, you're a holy person. And what you do is sanctified by the motivation by which you do it. Secondly, the sacred-secular dichotomy. I kind of touched on that because they're very similar. But some things are holy, some things are secular. And this is why this is important. The reason we talk about government here is because government is not secular. It's holy. It is sacred. Let me ask a question a different way. If God is the creator of everything, what part of his creation is sacred and what part of it is secular? Where is he not welcome? And where does he not have authority? It's really a question of authority. Everything in life is holy. When you break it up into sacred secular, you make a false dichotomy that it, it dishonors the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, pastor, you know, they already redefined marriage. There's not, nothing we can do to it. What are you talking about? Who gives you the authority to redefine an institution that God created? Who gives you the authority to do that? It's a usurpation of authority that we're dealing with because we have a false dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. Everything belongs to Jesus. It's all holy. Lastly, this whole compartmentalized dualism, that's a nice big fancy word for suggesting that some people are called into full-time ministry and some people are called into part-time ministry. Full-time, part-time. No, no, no. All the time. There is no compartment. You know, some people, like, if I said, hey, what's Sunday? Church. What's Saturday? Entertainment. What's Monday? Work. They have compartments in their life. How many of you know as soon as you invite Jesus to be Lord, you blow up all the compartments? Like, how many of you know what you do on Saturday night matters? Because Sunday morning's coming, and Jesus is Lord of Saturday, and he's Lord of Sunday. How many people you know, they go out on Friday and Saturday and do stuff that they have to repent for on Sunday? I went to a bunch of people that were raised in a certain tradition when I was in high school, and they would, they would go out and commit all kinds of atrocities on, on Saturday and then come to confession on Sunday or Saturday or whenever they do it. And I used to think that was the strangest thing. In jail, get out of jail. In jail, get out of jail. In jail, get out of jail. How about let's run from jail and stay free and never go back to jail ever again? Um, so stop, stop living with compartments in your life. If you're a Christian, there's no compartments. Well, this is my work, and I, I, I can't bring Jesus to work with me. You better bring Jesus to work with you. You got a multiple personality disorder or something like that. What does it matter with you? Well, you're going to hey, Jesus needs you to leave right now. It's work. Hey, Jesus, I'm going out to the movies with my friend. You might not appreciate that one scene. Okay, moving on to brighter. <laughs> How many know if you're saved, you have a full-time call to the ministry? I'm going to say that again. If you're saved, you have a full-time call to the ministry. Let's be about our Father's business. I'm going to end with a cool story. How many of you have heard of John Newton? 
He's the one who authored Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, Saved a Wretch Like Me. It's the most popular hymn ever sung. John Newton was raised in a godly family, godly mother who passed away shortly after he was born. He joined his father at the age of 11. His father was a fisherman, rough lifestyle, hanging out with some rough people, and it had a big impact on his life. He became, by his own testimony, a blasphemer of God, a vile man, a man with a foul mouth, a man that uh, was a heavy drinker. In fact, at one point he was drunk, fell overboard, and the only guys on the ship to rescue him were also drunk, so they grabbed a harpoon and threw it and stuck it into his leg and reeled him back into the shore. He walked with a limp the rest of his life. I mean, that's kind of a tough crowd to hang with. And, uh, and then he got involved in the slave trade. Uh, he was running a ship that was involved in the slave trade with Great Britain. This man had committed all kinds of atrocious sins, and, uh, and then he encountered Jesus. And I mean, you know, when he encountered Jesus, everything changed. And he was broken, and I love this. He took his experience with oppression and slavery and evil and used it to fight for the liberation and the freedom of slaves because he was an eyewitness of what was being done. But I want you to see this. So he encounters Jesus and feels the call of God into the ministry where he began to disciple and mentor and teach and train and use the pulpit as a voice for righteousness. On the other hand, some of you are familiar with William Wilberforce. If you haven't read Eric Metaxas' book uh, about William Wilberforce, look it up, get a copy. I'll tell you, it will change your life. William Wilberforce was five foot, three inches tall. He was a tiny man, but he roared like a lion. He fought tenaciously against the slave trade for over two decades. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was slandered. Uh, he was beaten. Uh, he had everything imaginable done to him. And at a moment of weakness, he goes to John Newton and he says, you know, I really feel like I'm called into the ministry and, I, and that I need to be doing what you're doing if I want to effectively serve the Lord. And in a famous letter, Newton wrote to him, he challenged him that the ministry into which God had called him was parliament and that the call was the, in, in Wilberforce's term, the reformation of manners, which meant simply the culture was so perverted and wicked and dark. His vision was to see the culture reformed and for righteousness to happen in the country. Newton said to him, stay where you're at. You're in a holy calling. What you're doing matters. And, and now it's all history because the slave trade collapsed in Britain like a house of cards because this little five-foot-three man understood from another man who, who wisely instructed him that what he was doing was an, an invaluable ministry and that while he was weary of the battle that he needed to stay in the game and that God indeed would help him. Can I just tell you something? Uh, when we get out in ref reforming the larger culture, it's a take-all-the-gloves-off battle. I mean, it, it's, it is war. That's why it's easier just to go to church. I mean, I'm serious. Everybody here pretty much likes each other. Pretty much. But when you start going out there in the halls of Congress or school board meetings or at work and you're going to stand up for truth and you're realizing everybody doesn't always agree the way I agree. Um, or you share the gospel with somebody, and, and, uh, and, or you're challenging them on a behavior or lifestyle, and they don't like it, and all of a sudden you're, you're the victim. 
This is, this is where the rubber meets the road. But how many of you believe Jesus is big enough to bring about transformation even in those tough situations? In other words, my dad said this. When I was, uh, when I was going to school, uh, my dad invited me to go to school with him because he, he coached over at Calumet and I was at Lake Central. And, um, you know, that way we could go together and all that. And I said, Dad, I really feel like I just want to stay here at Lake Central. And we looked at all kinds of options. And this is what I said to my dad. I said, you know what? If Jesus Christ is, is real and the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit is real and Jesus and the Holy Spirit live inside of me, I should be able to go off into a public school situation and shine brightly for Christ amidst a hostile crowd. In other words, I should go as an agent of change, and the environment should not change me. I should change the environment. So now listen, we have a bunch of homeschool movements here. We have Christian school. Please hear me in principle. I'm not saying you all need to pull your kids out and put them all in school and test their faith. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying this. Jesus Christ inside of you is big enough for the real world. For the real world, where they don't see it like us, talk like us, act like us, they're not nice, they lie, they cheat, they steal, it's all about self, that's the real world. Jesus Christ is big enough. And I want to encourage you, some of you, if you're sending your kids off to the public school, Jesus is big enough for your kids in the public school. And if you're going to a Christian school where you're able to be, train your kids in a Christian worldview or homeschool, praise the Lord, because, but hear this, you're being trained for war. You're not being trained to hide you. Parents, don't hide, don't train your kids to be hidden from the world in a monastery. Jesus wasn't. Train them for the marketplace. Train them to succeed out in the real world. Train them to bring the gospel. Train them for ministry. And God is big enough to see them prosper and thrive. Stand on your feet. I want to pray for us this morning. If you're with me and you want to embrace this call to ministry in a deeper way, just slip your hands up, will you? Just say, Lord, here I am. Father, I thank you that your secret weapon is a church that is equipped and unleashed and scattered. So, Lord, right now, what an awesome thing. We're going to say amen, and we're going to see 500 people leave these doors. And, Lord, we're going to be all over northwest Indiana. And, Lord, you've put us where you put us to be a bright light and a shining example for Jesus. And so, Lord, may we not miss out on the opportunity that we have. Help us love well, serve well. Help us to look like Jesus. Help us to glow with the joy of the Lord on our countenance, Lord. Give us wisdom. I pray for folks in here that are leading businesses or departments, divisions. Give them supernatural wisdom by the Holy Spirit to know how to lead well and how to solve problems, Lord. I thank you you're increasing our influence. I thank you we're growing. I thank you for the family we added today. I thank you that the church of Jesus Christ is an unstoppable force on planet Earth. And I thank you, Lord, that you're coming back for a church that's moving in victory and power. So, Lord, thank you for the equipping today. Thank you for the vision. Help us to live it now. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Hey, happy Thanksgiving. If you need prayer, come on down, but have a great week of uh, family time.